Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the old fashioned radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guest is media scholar Zizi Papakurisi. With her, we're exploring the question of what comes after democracy. Democracy is in trouble all over the world. Uh, Democratic governments are backsliding into authoritarian regimes. Um, More and more people express in surveys a declining faith in uh, what democracy can bring, a declining faith that democracy is a means, whatever they think they mean by it, uh, for solving the biggest problems that, that we face and that they experience in their lives. Many seem to think it is the internet's fault. You see articles after after articles, you know, arguing that social media has brought us to this dark place of accelerating polarization and empowering autocrats and and making our worst selves go viral. Things that were once maybe less public, less uh, broadcast, are now spreading all over the world. Um, in general, we're Uh, people seem to be making this connection between our digital networks and our political situation. Meanwhile, protest movements have emerged in online space, um, spread along those same same lines of viral distribution, creating hashtags and calls to action that have inspired people and, and generated hope, but they rarely seem to be able to turn the disruptions and hope they generate into structural change. And instead, maybe more often, we've seen politicians leverage these networks to strengthen their own hold on power. Now, how much has really changed with the advent of social media? Um, and how much is the same? Does democracy need to be fundamentally reinvented for a networked age? Few people have been thinking about the politics of the internet as long and hard as Zizi Papakurisi. And her latest book, After Democracy, takes these questions head on and explores through interviews with a hundred people all around the world, um, what the current state of democracy looks like and and what might come after where we are today. Zizi Papakurisi is head of the communication department at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and she's published uh, many books and many, many journal articles and book chapters and serves on the editorial board of, of many journals. She is a leading figure in the uh, study of media and communication today. Uh, She's the founding and current editor of the open access journal, Social Media and Society. Upon being named a distinguished professor last month, she she tweeted something that I think was just wonderful. A kid dreaming of being a writer, diplomat, and fashion designer turned into a professor and a distinguished one at that. I couldn't think of a better way to describe the combination of of influences and, and insights and and aspirations that uh, that Zizi Papakurisi brings to these questions. Welcome, Zizi. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I want to begin by looking back to when you first started studying 
the internet and politics on the internet. Did you see coming decades ago how this technology would shape politics today? You know, when you look at what's going on now, do you see things that you expected years ago or do you find yourself more surprised? Oh, this is such an interesting question. Um, there's some things that surprise me and there's some things that I semi-expected, but not exactly not exactly in the form that I, um, I'm seeing now. So for example, I've started studying the internet in the previous century and it gives me great pleasure to say that, you know, <laughs> it just sounds remarkably quaint, but I started studying it in the mid nineties and it was a very different medium. It was very small, less than 5% of the U S population had access to it. Less than 1% had access to it globally. So that's the quantitative aspect, but the qualitative aspect is that uh, people thought that most people who use the internet were losers. So that's what prompted my research. Uh, that's what got me interested was to um, this question of who exactly is using the internet and why, and are they losers? To me, it seemed like it was mostly people who had access to it and they were college students. <laughs> and when I was in co college, a lot of... Um, a lot of people used it to get together and to make connections and to meet up. For example, um, they were using Listserv a lot. I used to follow this. I went to a college on the East Coast, and there's this Listserv that I used to follow called Northeast Raves. And I was just fascinated by the amount of uh, connection and conversation between strangers who would meet online and then make plans to meet offline. The intensity of that conversation, whether it was friendly or whether it involved, uh, you know, just silly little quarrels about who knew the most about which artist. So that that whole thing fascinated me. It was something very, very new to me and something very new to someone of my age and my generation. You know, later on, and as I studied the medium more, I realized that these things had happened before in a different way, in a different shape or form, that, you know, young people uh, or people my age at a different time had had the same reactions and the same experiences. But I didn't really expect anything of the internet. I never really thought about it in terms of what I expected. You know, I just followed and traced something that I found fascinating. I thought I was prompted to think about what I expected when I went on interviews to find an academic job. And that's when I was actually thought to give my, you know, professional scholarly estimate on what the inter internet would be. And I would say, um, it seems like, something very new and something very small now, but one day it's going to be as ubiquitous um, and it's going to feel as natural or as everyday as going into a room and turning on the lights. And I'm surprised with myself that I had the, <laughs> the, the uh, insight or the prescience to say something like that when I was um, 23, but that's the extent of it. You know, I also would say things like, because I was often uh, asked about the future of journalism. So I would say uh, news as a genre is never going to, to die. It's never going to go away, but newspapers will. You know, you will not read the news on a piece of paper. That seemed to shock, uh, th th that seemed to shock people in general. <laughs> it seemed to shock, and I, I don't mean to stereotype. I'm just giving you an anecdotal description of who... 
uh, I encountered and who I said this and who seemed to be shocked by it. It was older white gentlemen who I, I, I would interview with. And the, the last thing that um, I would say that sounded preposterous, and I think I was I said that by virtue of spending a lot of time in Austin, going to graduate school there, and, and just coming of being in a scholar in an environment that was very tech startup-y at the time. I used to get a lot of questions about Amazon, and Amazon was very, very small, mostly focusing on books, had a very future at the time. And uh, to that, I would say Amazon will survive and become something very useful. All it needs is just better distribution centers. And indeed, that uh, the distribution centers were what enabled or the backbone, the infrastructural backbone of Amazon. So those are things that um, I would say, but at the same time, I think what surprised me is that I was correct. I didn't think I was correct. I, th- <laughs> uh, I think I was very, I think I was entertained and amused by saying these things that seemed natural to me, seemed uh, lucid and clear and uh, reflected my own hopes uh, and my own instincts about something that I was studying, but I didn't really, I didn't really expect to be to be right or wrong. It was just really about having fun, I think. So one of the things that's striking in your new book, uh, After Democracy, is the way in which um, informants, the people you talk to around the world, don't really seem to put a lot of um, emphasis on the internet. You know, you see a lot of punditry about how social media is destroying our democracy and, you know, what's the latest thing that Facebook or Twitter has done wrong or YouTube and has radicalized a new generation or something like this. But, you know, this is something you, you remark on as a media scholar, you're not so much seeing th- the presence of people's reflection on these technologies in their answers to your questions about democracy. What do you make of that? And do you agree with them? Do you agree that you know, how much do you think this technology really is part of the story of where we are in the world politically? Of course, I agree with them. I I didn't want to ask any questions about technology on purpose. I was very curious to see, um, you know, if I were to ask people who don't ordinarily think about democracy and what it means and who do not ordinarily think, you know, or do not think for a living about what technology means for democracy, what would they say? because in my own work, I have found that, of course, technology makes a part, plays a part in, in the political um, and societal um, changes that we've witnessed in the past few years, that, that we've witnessed in the history of mankind. But it's, it's one of many actors, if you will. Um, it's, one, it's one of... It's one of many different uh, contexts in which we perform the self and form relationships with one another. So I, I made the decision. It was a conscious decision to not ask about technology at all for a number of reasons. First, because I've always asked as a scholar about technology and I was in the mood to be adventurous uh, after Democracy is my 10th book. So I thought, let's uh, let's. Uh, break some rules, some of my own rules and some of my own habits and conventions, but 
some of my field conventions uh, as well and do do this in a rather unorthodox way. So I decided to not ask about technology because I had always been asking about it and I had beginning to wonder whether we were imposing that as a very convenient explanation. And then, of course, I didn't want to ask about it because in my own work, I have found that there are other... I'm not going to say that there are other factors that are necessarily more um, potent or become more relevant, but I will say that there are societal problems that persist that we haven't solved, and they resurface with every iteration of technology that, that we launch, that we present ourselves with, because it's us creating this technology for ourselves. You, you asked before if I've been surprised by some of the the problems um, the, or, or if, you know, if I've ever felt like I had a crystal ball <laughs> uh, and I was able to predict what might happen. I haven't, but I have been struck by the manner in which the same problems repeat, reproduce and reinforce themselves. So, you know, this thing, this problem that we have with toxicity, it's not new. And I'm not the only one who makes the argument that it's not new. Scholars have been studying how we, as human beings, produce toxicity for decades, for centuries. But not just too long ago, in the very beginning of my own career, one of the first studies that I did was one on civility. I was fascinated by what then happened online. It was called, instead of toxicity, it was called flame wars. It was a very similar thing. It just had a very different name. And it had to do with this tendency of strangers to just get into conversations about typically fundamental human rights, civic rights, and just really tear themselves apart. But in the end, in my study, they always found some way to reconcile the conversation, to bring it back into focus, to just kind of build that bridge that connected them uh, together. And I think that was because I was studying communities that were smaller at the time, because I was studying a form of conversation that was taking place in its proper size and context and form and texture. And then the difference now is that all of this scaled up and the technologies, as well as the infrastructure of democracy, cannot sustain it. So I didn't. You know, when I talk to people about whether technology plays a part in this, nobody, um, actually, when I avoided talking to people about that, <laughs> nobody brought it up. And when I talked to them about democracy, the first thing that people brought up is corruption which I think is one of the many reasons why we're not able to create technologies that engage our ima imaginations. And instead, we, we create technologies that present very convenient solutions, convenient outs for a number of different people. So, you know, in some sense, the, the narrative we often hear is that the problems with politics are kind of downstream from the media and from technology, but you're suggesting that maybe it's the other way around. Maybe these problems, at least, you know, in the minds of the people you spoke with, you know, actually start in politics. It's, it's definitely something that doesn't come up in conversation immediately. In fact, it doesn't come up in conversation at all. Mm -hmm. um, even if you prompt, even if you have a lengthy conversation where you, where you talk about corruption as a leading problem of democracy, and then you talk about other things that people bring up as leading problems with democracy, um, it's not an issue. And I would say 
it's it's an imposed it's uh, often presented represented frequently forced upon easy scapegoat and the one thing that we must understand it's also I think it's a Western uh, scapegoat imposed by the West on the rest of the world. Because if you think about the problems that people are having with democracy or with the lack of it in areas that um, that have just suffered, you know, a coup d'etat, for instance, or a regime reversal, they have nothing to do with the Internet. Certainly, technology afforded um, a digital path for connection. And we know that technology affords paths to connection, and these paths to connection can connect democratically-oriented people. They can also connect fascists. So it offers a path to connection. But on its own, it doesn't destroy democracy, nor does it, nor can it make democracy manifest out of nothing. It is not a magic wand. We have not created a magic wand yet. <laughs> Who knows? We might. <laughs> In, in these conversations, you're, you spoke with 100 people around the world, and this was pre-pandemic. And I understand with all of them, these were in-person conversations. Um, first of all, I'm curious, is that was that an, an important intentional decision for you? Or was it just pre-pandemic? And, you know, and second, I wonder, you know, about, and this goes back to something you said earlier about the, the unorthodoxy of the method. Did you think of this? I kept asking myself as I was reading uh, uh, this book is this art or science? Um, how do you see it as, <laughs> you know, as a, as a social scientist, you know, and also someone who uh, you know has real literary power and how in how you write, you know, what kinds of what kinds of choices were you making about the methods you're bringing to this question about the fate of democracy and what might come after it? Why did this kind of approach feel so ripe to you? That's such a wonderful question, and um, it honors me that you present this question to me. It, um, it's very much what I had in mind when I wrote the book. You know, I wanted the book to occupy an interesting space between art and science, um, and it does. Uh, the Institutional Review Board at my university viewed it as a little bit of arts and a little bit of science and a little bit of journalism and that's how I got approval to got to get the re, to conduct the research uh, my own editors uh, viewed it as a little bit too artsy and literary and literary in the writing often and after uh, they offered edits and sometimes I adopted them and sometimes not and my own motivation behind it you know was a little bit romantic and a little bit pragmatic I envisioned myself as just sort of uh, you know you ask whether I would um, I wouldn't doing the interviews by in person was by choice. Of course it was. I, you know, I wanted, um, I wanted to do the interviews in person. I did them pre pandemic. I didn't at the time I could not imagine myself doing them in any other way. Um, it's remarkable what we've done with technology in terms of how we can communicate in a way that feels very immediate with zoom and many of the other platforms that we have supported and that we've created and that we've become very comfortable with. But when I conducted this, I could not imagine having these conversations in, in an immediate uh, and intimate way that prompted sincerity uh, that was not, uh, that did not involve physical presence, pre uh, physical presence and closeness and physical proximity. Um, if I were to do this all over again, 
I think I could do it as well, or perhaps in a better way or in a different way uh, via Zoom. I don't think it's possible or or impossible, you know, to to imagine these projects with um, with this type of physical presence and immediacy and. Again, you know, when I use these words of, you know, physical presence, I feel uncomfortable because I don't think that, you know, the two of us are chatting uh, right now. And I don't think that we're not physical pres- physically present. I do think we have, would have had a very different conversation if we were, you know, sitting opposite each other <laughs> um, than we do now. So I guess what I'm saying, and you may have heard me say this before, I think Technology works as architecture, and I think that in the same manner in which our surrounding architecture influences our moods and creates atmosphere and sets the tone and, you know, tickles our imagination and inspires us to say things that we might say in a room that's confined, that has a low ceiling, that has no windows, that feels like a cell, right? Versus the things that we might say in a room that's filled with lights and windows and high ceilings and uh, and form of architecture that we find very friendly and inspiring. Um, well, there's differences between how we would express themselves, perhaps ourselves. Perhaps we might say the same things, um, but in a different way, using different words and different metaphors. Or perhaps we might have completely different ideas. Which is why I, I place such a high value, you know, so much importance in what we use technology for, um, how we look at technology, what place we find for technology, how we, what we imagine technology might be, what shapes it might create, and then what would our thinking look like if it took place within these different shapes that or within shapes and forms and textures that we have not yet imagined. So what might we become if we were allowed to exist in architectures that were completely new, completely different from what we have lived in before? And if that happened, what kind of democracy would we want? Would we still want democracy? Or would we want the system of governance that's that's better or that's different or that's a better fit for us. That's really how I came across the idea behind After the Democracy. You know, this idea of is democracy the best that we can come up with? I started thinking about technology and I asked myself and I asked of others, is what we have created the best we can come up with and who might we be? Who might we allow ourselves to become if we imagine things differently? Let's come to those questions right after the break. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Zizi Peppergrisi about democracy, technology, social media, and what comes next. 
you pose the question in the title of your book, After Democracy, and in the answer to, you know, to the last question just now, uh, about what comes next. Um, is democracy something that we will always be pursuing, or is it just a phase in, you know, in human history? First of all, can you say a bit about the answer to that question, that first question you asked your informants, your hundred people you spoke with around the world, what is democracy? When you use it in the title of your book, what does it mean to you? For me, democracy means consensus. Um, are we always going to have democracy or is it just a phase in human history? I would say it's a it's a phase that we keep returning to. We don't always have democracy and we don't have democracy everywhere. So it's a phase that we go in and out of. It's a state. In the book, I end up saying that democracy is always on the run. And perhaps, you know, another way to a way to rephrase that is to say that it feels like, and it felt like definitely when I was speaking with the people who had the generosity and kindness to have the conversation with me, it felt that we were chasing after democracy constantly, that we were running after it, that democracy was on the run. It had this sort of fugitive soul, but uh, we were part of that fugitive soul as well. You know, we were fugitives running from other things and toward democracy as a place of safety. Um, And of course, then I started wondering, is is democracy this place of safety that we want it to be? Or is it supposed to be a state of constant revolution and change and tumult and noise? Uh, We always view it as this perfect state of tranquility. We think when we have perfect democracy, we we will have peace. And I'm not sure that's the case. Now, in having the conversation with my with my informants, I often got, well, I saw myself as a bit of like, you know, a rolling stone or tumbleweed. I just kind of imagined myself as a, as a force or a person who somehow could roll through the world and could stumble upon places uh, that I had not and people that I had not en- encountered uh, before. And for us, human beings, in order to move outside our habitus, you know, our world of habits and routines, well, we have to make a plan for it. So I made a plan to roll outside of my habitus and my place of comfort and outside outside familiar routes and maps and stumble into people that I would ordinarily not have conversations with. And, And everything about the conversation was organized to have that sort of immediacy and an impromptu element, kind of like something of a, of a happy accident. You know, I, I stumbled into you and we started talking about other things, but now let's talk about this. The, uh, the responses that, we, that I received uh, were very textbooky. And this is, this is not uncommon when we conduct interviews as social scientists, when we ask, what does um, democracy mean to you? What does activism mean to you? What does your work mean to you? What does life mean to you? Often the first response we get is the token one, the one that we've been raised with. So as scientists, again, we have strategies for getting around that. Uh, and so then I would ask, well, what does democracy feel like? Uh, if you were to see it, how would you recognize it? And then and people would start to feel more comfortable and they would tell me stories about 
the last time they saw democracy, you know, as if democracy was this kind of, you know, familiar stranger that they would bump into. Um, and then that's how I started put, putting these pieces together, you know, piecing the story of what, of what democracy is, starting to describe it as this thing that has a fugitive soul, as something that we envision as this outer state of balance and tranquility, but rather, but instead something that we experience as imbalance, uh, as an invitation to change. Uh, because that is what people would tell me when they told me stories of democracy. They would tell me of conversations with people who thought in ways very different uh, than theirs, people from different backgrounds, um, unexpected stories of you know political reconciliation. So, so much of your work leading up to this has been about the relationship between private and public space, about affect and emotion and and the the kind of feel felt landscape of of political and and online life um you know in in this in these conversations you ask kind of in some ways very abstract and political questions kind of public questions about citizenship and and things like that and yet and and yet as you as you just said you know the truth seemed to reveal itself most through the um through the feeling, the felt experience, once people were able to connect democracy to something they had felt. Um, what do you think we need to know about the emotional, the affective landscape um, of, of politics in order to begin to move forward? What What did you learn about uh, about seeing that side, especially through the lens of, of your past work, which is, as El, ha, has insisted on the importance you know that component of of social life. You know, I don't. I don't think about. We. I don't think we. Th- we consider. Um, we ponder the part that mood and atmosphere and setting the right tone um, play often enough, and it's fascinating to me because in our personal lives we do. So you know, when we want to romance someone. It's all about setting the mood, you know, and taking them to just the right restaurant or just the right experience. Um, when we when we teach in class, you know, it's all about creating the right atmosphere. Uh, in radio, you know, which you have experience, I have experience as well. Such an interesting medium because it's lacking in so many other cues that. Uh, when I worked in it, when people work in it, you know, they're so vested in creating just the right kind of mood, setting the right tone with their voice, with the kind of new music that they play. So we know all these things, you know, we know that mood can make an atmosphere and can tone, tone can make such a huge difference in terms of how we communicate with each other, uh, plays a part in how we design our school learning experiences. But we forget about it when we when we turn to technology and um, we design as if, well, we design as if all of that didn't really matter. We design as if we lived in houses that don't have, you know, subtle affective reminders of who we are everywhere. We design as if we don't, we haven't created our homes to be comfortable spaces where we can have... Uh, cozy relationships that evolve and grow and change along with us, with our family members. 
it's interesting. Yes, I, you know, I've, I guess I have been interested. Um, I've been fascinated, rather, to put it more accurately, by, by structures of feeling uh, and technology. But I didn't realize, didn't realize it until about, you know, halfway through my career. I didn't realize that I was, you know, entranced by these binaries that, you know, sort of pit, you know, the the logic, uh, you know, reason against um, moods and affects and feelings and the world of the senses, you know. And this was every part, you know, this defined every part of how I introduced myself uh, to others. You know, I utilized these binaries to position myself, to present myself in a way that combined them and balanced them and challenged them. I'll give you an example for it. And every single one of my idols as I was growing up also reorganized these, these binaries in interesting ways. So when... Uh, when I used to go, this is something that I used to do. Now I do something different. But uh, when I go to introduce myself, I'm, I'm a department head of a uh, of communication at the University of Illinois. So uh, when I go to introduce myself to our first years, I used to put three pictures up, and I have no idea what sense these made to to uh, people who grew up in the United States. I grew up in Europe, but I would put up this picture of Umberto Eco. And this other picture of uh, uh, who is, you know, an Italian semiologist who did very many, many, many things. You know, I would say he's a contemporary philosopher, but among other things, he just sort of invented the field of media studies for Italy. And I would say he invented and reinvented it for many of us in the rest of the world. And then I would also put up the this picture of um, Jean-Luc Godard, a French filmmaker, who reinvented how we understand cinema. And then I would also put up this picture of this Italian actress uh, named Monica Vitti, and not many people know her, but I'll explain why I put these three people up. And I, I would say it to my students because I've been following them ever since I was 10 or 11. I would just see their pictures in magazines and I would read interviews with them. And I loved uh, Umberto Eco's interviews. They were fascinating. I had this picture that I cut out of a magazine of his when I was a teenager. And I mean, he's not a good looking man by any objective standard. Uh, he's rather awkward looking, uh, but he's very charming. And this picture makes him look very formidable and actually makes him look very, very attractive. It's black and white and it's taken from a weird angle. And I still have it framed in my office. And I liked him so much because he never lectured about the same thing twice. And I thought, wow, if I could only in some small part, be that way, you know, find the appeal in not repeating them myself and be able to reinvent myself and what I say as effortlessly as he does. And then Jean-Luc Godard, I liked because he was a romantic and a pragmatist at the same time, you know, every single movie uh, of his has this sort of such a romantic feel, you know, expressed in such a new language uh, and yet it has the pragmatist, uh, you know, it's, it's this strong, this um, romanticism is just, you know, slams into the pragmatics of everyday life. And I was just fascinated by those contrasts and how you presented them. And then Monica Vitti um, as a female was fascinating for me because she was very, very sensual, very erotic, beautiful, very intelligent, but also very goofy. 
And I was fascinated by the fact that a, a person and a woman could be all of those things at the same time. So these antitheses, I find them fascinating. And through, through my work, I don't want to negate them, but I want to find a way to recognize them and name them and understand their power and find a way to combine them without just sort of erasing them, you know, erasing their peculiarities. Affective Publics, I often say, was a very personal book for me because ultimately it was a book about, you know, the fight between reason and emotion, impulse, you know, the fight between logic and emotion, cognition and emotion. And I saw affect as this bizarre bridge. You know, a, a concept that's central to how you define affect in that work um, is intensity. And I think that's a word that also maybe helps connect some of those some of those um, idols that you described earlier. I mean, there's an intent, a different kinds of intensity uh, among them. No, this is true. They're all very intense. They're very, and they're unforgettable because of their intensity, among other things as well, among other qualities. And so w- what moments of intensity stood out to you in, in the research in this book? You know, whether it was with in a formal interview or in other kinds of experiences, were there, were there kind of peaks of intensity that, that caught your attention that seemed to be something we need to be paying more attention to? In a few of my books, I write about the fact that when I was born, there was a military dictatorship in Greece. It was over by the time I was one. Um, so it didn't really impact the manner in which I went to school or I experienced um, everyday life, not in the way that it's impacted other colleagues of mine, other friends who grew up in military dictatorships. But it painted an interesting context and it created these pictures inside my head, to paraphrase Lipman, that informed this, this collage, you know, this, this um, uh, pinup board that I had of inspirational moments that served as drivers that, you know, called up this intensity, uh, provoked, evoked this intensity within me to, um, to follow particular instincts. You know, the first one was this um, incident that was not the cause of leading to the regime reversal of, you know, reversing the coup d'etat in in Greece where I grew up. But it was part of the general movement. And it was an incident that it took place inside a university in um, during the month of November, many, many decades ago in Greece, when a number of university students gathered beside the open signifier of opposing the dictatorship. Uh, and the signifier united them, and they all gathered as an expression, uh, or rather to express um, their, their disgust with the world that they had been forced to live in. And much of their sentiment that they expressed, because they were people of many different ideologies, and you know, the movement was ideological in the sense that it was for democracy and against dictatorship, but it was filled with intensity. And we have recordings of those moments that we listen to when we celebrate the anniversary um, of that of that movement on the the seventeenth of November in Greece. And we often 
listen to those radio recordings of things that happened uh, during the movements. You know, that particular movement used radio to communicate with the outside, to the to to communicate how they had to barricade themselves inside the university for asylum, to communicate how they were resisting the brutality of the police forces, to communicate how they were panicking when military tanks were crushing through the university doors, um, to communicate how they were running away from, from soldiers, their brothers, people who were the same age, who had been told that they had to sort of stand against them and fight, you know, fight that tendency for democracy. And again, it's not something new and it's not something unique to Greece. You know, when I hear people describing, you know, the events that took place at one of my alma maters, Kent State University, I can sense the same kind of intensity. But when I think of intensity, I often think, uh, you know, one of the places where I first experienced that mediated intensity was through listening to the radio recordings of November 17th. And this is why when I'm asked, you know, is this intensity unique to new media? I will say no. And one of the first examples that I point to is the medium of radio, which carries that intensity and has been a medium of revolution and change for so many movements, as has music. And that's another example of intensity that I draw from. Uh, when I think about movements for change, but also, well, let me put it this way, movements for change that is public and private and a little bit of both, you know, to, to tie it back to a question that you asked me into a strand of my research that you picked up on. I think about music. I think about how music help us get a sense, get a firmer sense of who we are, helps us um, articulate that sense, helps us tell a story about who we are to our own selves, especially when we're teenagers, when we're at that formative age of understanding who we are and developing our identity, but also helps us tell a story together about who we want to be as a society, as a movement, how we want to move forward. And then I think about, you know, a second point, historical point for me is the civil rights movements of the, the late 50s and the 60s and the early 70s and how they used um, music uh, as a unifying signifier and the role that music played to bring together people of many different, many different ideology. And then I also think of, fashion and the things that people wear to indicate that they're part of a particular movement or to indicate that they're opposing the dominant way of thinking within a particular society. And then I think of the Black Panthers, which you might think, how would a kid growing up in Greece um, think about that or know about that movement? But it's something that I came across and read about and was fascinated by, um, you know, the the code of dress and how that connected to a code of expression and that how then that connected to a code of resistance and how that communicated unity and an intensity that were so important for the public that they united and so alarming for the society within which they existed. It's so important to recognize that international quality of that movement and and again, the, the way in which global networks existed before the internet, right? And the way in which they were drawing images and, and motifs from, from other movements in, in Africa and elsewhere around the world, and that they were in turn inspiring others. 
You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us again, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We're speaking with uh, media scholar, head of the Department of Communication at uh, the University of Illinois, Chicago, Zizi Papakarisi. We talked a bit before about art and science. Let's think of what might come after our current state of democracy, our current condition, uh, our current political condition uh, as, as a painting and and, and, and we as artists have a palette. From what you heard uh, from, your, from the people you spoke to all around the world about uh, the condition of democracy, um, what do you think that palette could look like? What, what do we have to work with to begin crafting what we really need um, in, our, in our political institutions and, and culture? I love this question so much for so many different reasons. Okay, I... I'm just going to bring up one artist, but it's quite likely that, you know, I'll get off the line with you and I'll think of countless other examples. But when I was thinking, when I was thinking about this book, and I've been thinking about it for some time before I actually started figuring out how I was going to conduct it, I was deeply mesmerized by the work of Gerhard Richter, who has this practice of just like throwing paints on a canvas and then spreading it across and then meticulously like scraping it to unveil different layers of color underneath that are somehow interconnected and united and then painting over it and then mixing up the colors and scraping again to reveal uh, layers of color, layers of meaning. And I realize, I only realize now, I think I was just telling you during break that I can never remember when I come up with a certain idea to <laughs> to do something. But I think probably that was the context within which I, would, I, I got the inspiration or I got the idea that, you know, perhaps democracy is not it. Perhaps there's many different layers within it and we can somehow discover it or bring them together or connect them in new ways, new ways that lead to something not necessarily better, but something that fits us better, fits fits our societies better, fits who we are better um, by doing this sort of creative remixing, you know, mashing up and then scraping and redoing to constantly be in a process of creating and destroying and revealing and also to not be afraid of the process of creating, mixing up, and then pulling back those layers to see what lies underneath. And then, of course, creating the technologies that make it easier for us to splatter things together, you know, just randomly connect them and then find a way to remove those layers, peel away those layers um, to see what lies underneath, how it might be connected, or if it's not connected, give it some time 
to mold itself together and then take another look, mix it up together and scrape it again. These sort of exercises that have a kind of order to them, but it's a very sort of spontaneous uh, approach to combining um, ordering our thoughts. So we're not necessarily classifying in a way that's tyrannical, but we're rather inviting different kinds of combinations that have the power to regenerate themselves. So we're creating generative and regenerative and imaginative architectures. And at one point you talked about, you know, this concept of play, which I'm really attracted to in thinking about politics, right? I mean, there's so many ways in which democratic processes can look like sporting events, you know, where you're rooting and fighting for your team and identifying with them or more open forms of play where, where people are bending rules and, and um, exploring their, their possibilities that others haven't explored yet. Um, The kind of creative recombination that you were just describing, but at the same time, you know, as much as I feel drawn to that, often I hear this sense of like urgency and danger that so many people feel around politics today. And I wonder, like, how do you, how do you place those together? You know, I mean, so many people feel so scared, I think, today about the state of, of political life, the, uh, the danger of what might come for them in the future, the danger that they're facing presently. Um, how, how do we juxtapose that, that possibility of, of play, of seeing politics as play with the kind of seriousness of the situation? Uh, Yeah, but, you know, I mean, this is the problem. We do not use technology for play. And whenever we use technology for play, um, there's all kinds of discourses and rhetorics and narratives that tell us that it's not, that's not a healthy form of play. And yet, if you look at the history of humanity, we've consistently turned to technology for play. Well, you know, we've invented technologies out of the need to play. You know, there's a fundamental human need for release. This is why I'm so, so drawn to affect. And so many of the forms of play that we have are deeply affective. You know, they emerge out of, you know, the process of painting that I was describing has that element of spontaneity that is deeply affective. And so all of our processes of play, you know, are are driven by affect, you know, starting with how we how we're drawn to play as kids and also how we're fascinated by play um, as adults. And yet, you know, play is one of the first things to be criticized when we look at the flaws within ourselves. Uh, and we'll say, oh, you know, there's too much playing around, not enough seriousness, not enough work. Or, you know, when we look at the flaws within our democracies, our societies, we'll just say there's too much goofing about, there's too much playing around, there's not enough, you know, uh, focus, concentration. It, it's so interesting that you bring up, too, the, this idea of play, because I've always, you know, my ultimate goal, my hope is that one, at some point, I'll be able to write a book about play that's based on this idea of play as the essence of human existence. You know, I've always thought, you know, my entire career, I've studied what technology does. And the answer that I've always um, come up with is it gives us access to things that we're not able to experience 
uh, in our everyday life, but we really want to have, you know, that we really yarn after. We feel this just sort of, you know, this desire for them, you know, inside our soul. We can't, it's, it's so intense that we can't even find the words to express it. But when we find technology, we try to make use of it, mold it, approach it in a way that helps us then release uh, you know, that tension, release that need for playfulness. So, you know, I, I asked the question, do we use it for politics? And the, the answer that I come up with is no, we use it for playfulness. Um, can it reinvent democracy? And the, the, the response that I stumble into over and over again, no, because people turn to it in order to be, to be playful in order to reinvent themselves. Um, do we use Twitter? You know, um, I started studying Twitter in its early days, you know, because people thought it was rather silly that we would go online and post pictures of what we had for breakfast, which is what we did, and uh, were ridiculed for doing so by mainstream uh, narratives. Again, that's part of a playful tendency. You know, nobody's really all that vested in posting what they had for breakfast. Obviously, they're making a mockery out of something. You know, they're, they're being, they're goofing about because they just need to goof about. So I think that lies behind the heart of every um, uh, technology that we create and also beneath, you know, within our own hearts, you know, this, this playfulness. How does all of this connect to, to democracy? In the conversations that I had with people, when I asked for stories of inspiration, you know, when they felt like they saw democracy or when did it feel like democracy or when, when were they inspired by democracy, they talked about moments where they, when they were having playful conversations in their micro communities. So I don't think that playfulness is the solution but I think it's part of the solution. I think we find we need to build in our societies avenues for releasing tension that are playful, you know, because the avenues that we have for releasing tension are very rigid and we take to them in very rigid way. And very often, too often, we take to them with guns and that's not healthy for our society. It's not healthy, obviously, for any society, but it appears to be much more pronounced and much more frequent in, in our society, in our democracy in the United States. We need to use technology to create outlets for releasing tension that are much, that more, that are more playful. We need to use play as an exercise for bringing us together, uh, connecting us when we have very disparate, very divisive points of view. Um, and again, by the way, that's not something new. I think in psychology, you know, play uh, is often strategy. Role play is often a strategy that's used to, to mend relationships that have been broken. So I would say let's use technology for, for what we instinctively, let's create technologies um, that do what we instinctively want technology to do, you know, to, to help us play. Thank you. That's a, it's a powerful place to end and a, and a call to action. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. What, what a wonderful conversation we've had. I, I anticipated having a wonderful conversation, but I didn't anticipate being able to just also, you know, crystallize and advance my own thinking in, in the way that your questions permitted me to. So thank you for that. Thank you for that opportunity. 
You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Zizi Papakurisi about the question of what comes after democracy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. If you've liked what you heard, please spread the word about it and leave a review where you get your podcasts. And I'd also love to hear from you with comments and guest ideas. You can reach us at medlab at colorado.edu. Please join us next month.